0: Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 167 of season 3, 232 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. And we're going to talk about James Clavell's Asian saga. I just yesterday on... My drive home from work, nearly home, about halfway through town, finished up book six of The Asian Saga, Whirlwind. These are long, long books, and I've been listening for a few years now, off and on, not steady all the way through, but Shogun, you might recognize, Shogun is the first book. On Audible, it says the length is 53 hours, 33 minutes. So it's a long, long novel. Historical fiction. It is fiction, but it is easy to forget that it's fiction with as much detail as Clavel gives to his characters. It is very pulpy, like James Bond kind of over-the-top action, and machismo, and women being as they are in a typical James Bond film or book, I presume. I've never read any James Bond books, but I know that the movies are based off of books. But Shogun is 53 hours and 33 minutes. Taipan, which is book two, is 32 hours and 11 minutes. Guy Jin, book three, 50 hours, 17 minutes. Book four is titled King Rat. It is 15 hours and 55 minutes, which is funny because being the shortest, you'd imagine probably that that one I finished quicker. But I actually think it took me longer. I could be wrong, but it felt like it took me a lot longer to finish. Those 15 hours and 55 minutes of King Rat. It's based in a prisoner of war camp during World War II. Very depressing. But then we've got book five, 54 hours, 43 minutes, and finally Whirlwind, which I just finished yesterday, 52 hours and 59 minutes. Now, I thought that I had finished the entire series and I was feeling really accomplished. Thereby, because I've been listening to the series for three or four years now, and so it's been with me for quite some time, And, and as I just read for you, these are long, long novels. 50, 50, 50, 50. You know, we've got four audiobooks that are over 50 hours each. One, two, three, four. So there's 200 hours plus 30, plus 15, we're talking about closer to 300 hours of audiobooks over the past probably four years. That's a lot. That's a lot of audiobook. That's a lot of narrative. And it's a lot of, within the story of the books, that's a lot of history to cover. And what's so interesting about this series is The first book, and these are not necessarily written in the order in which they occur in the narrative, I don't remember which one it was that he wrote first, it might have been King Rat that he wrote first, but Shogun is set in, I think it's the 15th century or 16th century, something like that, I should look it up here. Yeah, sure enough. There it is. King Rat was published in 1962. And funny, interesting story. Not funny, actually. I, I don't know why I use that phrase. Funny, but interesting story. James Clavell, the author, actually was himself a POW. So, him having started the Asian saga towards the end and then going back and writing. Shogun, Taipan, uh, Gaijin, he started with what he knew, which is a good tip for authors. Start with what you know. But he was writing about a POW camp from the experience of having been in a prisoner of war camp. So King Rat published in 1962, Taipan 1966, Shogun 1975, Noble House 1981, Whirlwind 1986, Gaijin 1993, those are the publication years. And then internal chronology-wise, Shogun is set in feudal Japan 1600, Taipan is set in Hong Kong 1841, and it tells the story of the rise or the birth of Hong Kong, which is really interesting to think about. Gaijin is set in Japan again, 1862. King Rat, set in a Japanese POW camp in Singapore, 1945. Noble House is set in Hong Kong again, 1963. And then Whirlwind is set in Iran in 1979 during the revolution. Ayatollah Khomeini taking over the country with his revolutionary students and all that. There's also, I thought, I thought I was done in the series, but there is also one additional book that's an addendum to Whirlwind, Dovetails Off of Whirlwind. It's 16 hours and 52 minutes. Uh, Audible calls it book 6.5. So Whirlwind is book six in the Asian saga. Escape is book 6.5, but it has a terrible. Rating. It's three out of five stars, whereas every other book in the series has thousands or at least hundreds of ratings. Escape has 34 ratings and an average rating of three. Everything else has four and a half to five stars. And actually Taipan has a five star rating, which is pretty unusual. You don't usually see a five star rating for anything. But it is an excellent, excellent book. I guess four point eight. If I click in, it looked like five star, but it's actually four point eight. Um, but it's so interesting that, as I just read for you the chronology of the story, you're you're not following the exact same characters in each successive book, but you kind of are, and so the things that the main protagonist, the main characters are going through and doing in Shogun have these ripple effects in Taipan set 240 years into the future from when Shogun is written. And so also Gaijin is set 21 years into the future from when Taipan was set And you're, again, you're getting these ripple effects. And then King Rat, it's another jump forward to 1945. And all of a sudden, things start to feel more familiar, and they start to feel like, hey, I know people who served in World War II. At least that was the case for me. My grand, both of my grandfathers. My grandfather on my father's side was in the Merchant Marines, and, uh, He was on the Pacific side of things, more so, but I think he went all over. And then my grandfather on my mother's side, he was in the European theater uh, patching up men coming back from the D-Day invasion. But King Rat, set in a Japanese POW camp during World War II, is colored by things that you've figured out about the Far East, about China, and about Japan, and about Western engagement for trade in Hong Kong, and in Japan, and in China, through the first three books, you know, 1600 through 1862, Shogun Taipan Gaijin, give you a context for thinking differently about World War II and thinking differently about this POW camp more specifically. And then World War II happens and the POWs get released, obviously, the ones who don't die anyway. And fast forward again, and it's 18 years later, and we're back in Hong Kong, and this is Noble House, and now it's even more familiar, now it feels even more modern, it feels even more like this is something I I'm familiar with. I'm I'm able to imagine myself in the story more easily, even though we started out in feudal Japan in 1600, which felt very far removed, even though the characters are well-written. I don't feel like a, a man of the 17th century necessarily. I don't feel like a man of the 19th century necessarily. When I fast forward to Taipan and Gaijin, But 1963, I believe that's the year my mother was born, actually. So, you know, still before my time, obviously, but starting to feel more like this is something familiar. I could have a connection to these people, you know, at least one person removed if they were real people. And then Whirlwind feels a little bit like not just, Chronologically, it's jumping, but it feels as though set in Iran, Iran uh, is is not Japan, and it's not Hong Kong, and it's not China. It feels like Iran is uh, so, so far away, and yet the same elements, the same... Dynamics, you've become familiar with through the first five books in the Asian Saga series, find tendrils, and they're interwoven through Iran, even though the Persians are very different than the Japanese, very different than the Chinese. The Westerners are not quite so different. And insofar as they are different, They're informed in the way that they're engaging Persia and Iranians by the legacy of their forebears, their predecessors, who've been trading in Japan, China, Hong Kong. I think, too, right now in our day where China has cracked down on all political dissidents in. Hong Kong and is posturing like they're going to take over Taiwan. They're going to invade the country of Taiwan, which is a country by the way, and China. Sorry. You you may not you might not like that, but China, Taiwan is its own country, uh, officially recognized as its own country. But it's interesting to get the backstory. I feel like Growing up, I was not very aware of Far Eastern uh, history and context. I was loosely aware. I was really, really interested in feudal Japan in my late teens because there was a game, there's a strategy game called Shogun Total War, which was all about almost like a risk game, like the board game Risk. You've got these provinces, and you're supposed to develop them, and you're supposed to use your armies, you build armies, and you fight your neighbors. You try to take their provinces, and ultimately, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take over uh, Japan, and you're trying to you're trying to become the shogun, which is the daimyo of daimyo. So you become the feudal lord of all Japan. You're not the emperor, but the emperor. At a certain point in Japanese history, just becomes a figurehead. He's deified, but he does not rule directly. Who actually rules directly is this military regent warlord who is always posturing, he's always vying with upstart competitors, rivals in Japan for whether he will maintain that title protector of the realm, regent, shogun. And so I was very interested in this game, and I wanted to buy it. And in order to justify buying it to my parents, I think in particular my dad, because my dad was not real keen on violent video games, uh, I think in large part because he was raised Mennonite, and Mennonites are pacifists and all that. But in order to justify getting this game, I did some research on feudal Japan and wrote a report. And I ended up getting the game and playing the ever-loving out of it. And that gave me a little bit of context for Japan. But my studies, by and large, concluded uh for quite some time, once I had the game and I was able to play the game. Yes, I was playing the game and learning some things um, as I was playing, but as far as actually doing really good studying, uh, understanding, I didn't really care much, honestly, for quite some time. And I think if you fast forward to the past five years or so, I've been increasingly interested in trying to understand the Far East, particularly China, with regards to North Korea and South Korea and Japan. And Clavel has really ignited an interest on my part for examining more closely the history of Far Eastern countries, not just Japan. The samurai are great. I think you can't get much better than samurai as far as this larger-than-life hero, but not hero. They're almost monstrous. Uh, The samurai, the closer you look at them, the less fun they are and the more monstrous they are. This whole idea of committing seppuku, if you... uh, dishonor yourself or your family or your liege lord or what have you. It's very dark and the flippancy with which feudal Japanese on up to World War II dispose of people who have disgraced themselves or gotten in the way or what have you is just quite remarkable. It's it's very, very different than the Judeo-Christian sensibilities we've developed in the West And insofar as the Asian saga is a story about Asia, it's also a story about East meets West. It's a story about the compare and contrast of Western ways of thinking and relating on an individual level, on a group level, when it comes to economic transactions, when it comes to politics and religion and philosophy and love and everything. It's also a story of how East and West have affected one another when they meet. It's not just a compare and contrast, more contrast than comparison. It's also interesting how trading in the Far East affects the way that these Europeans think of themselves and think of their place in the world. You you easily can see the beginnings of this global citizen-type mindset that we find in our day. The people who are very wealthy, who own these big international, transnational corporations, don't typically think of themselves as Americans first and foremost, even if citizenship-wise they are Americans, even if their companies are based in America, they very often think of themselves as citizens of the world. And it's hard to it's hard to fathom, apart from a series like this, apart from a series like The Asian Saga, how it is that you could have people based in this country or descended from people of Western civilization, not even necessarily American, first and foremost, but even just being proud to be European. You know, if they come from Scotland, or if they come from France, or they come from Germany, or they come from Italy, it's no longer acceptable to be proud of being from Europe. It's very quickly construed as racist. And there's a lot of racism in Asian Saga. But what's interesting is, and I think this is part of what makes this series so much more realistic and believable, is that the racism is on all sides. The Japanese can be racist. The Chinese can be racist. The Iranians can be racist. The Europeans who are trading in these countries and trying to keep one step ahead of the racism inherent to the people they're working around against them, the xenophobia against them that could lead to their untimely demise. It's very even-handed. You don't have quite, quite so much racism on the part of the Westerners, but you do have it from Westerners, and you do have it from the Easterners, but more telling than racism is just a difference in the way of thinking. It's a difference of mindset with regards to philosophy, with regards to worldview, with regards to religion, with regards to principles. That comes through much stronger than any concern about differences in race. People of different ethnicities can be allies in the Asian saga And people of the same race could be the worst of enemies. And that's actually more typically what plays out is that the the bitterest rivals are competing houses, European houses of trading and commerce, not the Europeans and the Asiatics. And it's not usually the Asiatics who are first and foremost concerned with Europeans they're first and foremost concerned about how does a European alliance, how does the Taipan of the Noble House allying himself with our competitors in Hong Kong or in China or in Japan, how does that affect us? Does that give them a competitive advantage against us? And do we need to destroy these foreigners as a way of keeping our competitors in country from getting ahead of us. And that kind of dynamic plays out again and again and again. And that, to my way of thinking and to my studying history and my studying of God's Word, I think that makes far, far more sense. I think race, the vast majority of cases, is used as an excuse to do what we would do anyways. And if we didn't have racial differences to justify or try and justify the things that we want to do anyways, we would just reach for some other distinction some other excuse for not loving our brother not taking care of our neighbor as we would take care of ourselves as we love ourselves but i will level with you I mean, the asian saga it really does it really does a number on your soul in some places because it does get really, really um, brutal. I mean, there's a lot of cruelty and a lot of just utter contempt and disregard for the value of human life. And what's actually very, very interesting, and I don't want to give too much away here, but I think you'll be fine. There's far more to read in the series than just what I'm going to tell you right now. As though you know, If I tell you this, you would Ah, forget it. I was going to read it. I was going to read all 250 to 300 hours worth of audiobook. But now you ruined it. The very end of Whirlwind, set in Iran, 1979, includes this little snapshot of an Iranian and his son fleeing into the mountains and... They're going to, the father is going to try and spread this revolutionary form of Islam, radical Islam, to neighboring uh, tribes and peoples of Iran. And he credits one of the European characters, who was just previously trying to escape Iran for very different reasons, but for related reasons, He credits this European character with having opened his eyes to the key to combating Western devils and the key to Islam conquering the world and prevailing over all opponents. And this Iranian, as he's trying to explain things to his son, a six-year-old son who's confused, what are we doing, Dad? He says that Westerners place a great deal of value on a single human life, and you can conquer them that way. They place so much value on a single human life that if you threaten even a single human life, you can enslave a great many Western people. They will bend the knee to your demands. And basically what Clavel is alluding to here, you know, writing this in 1986, year I was born, he's alluding to the germ of the idea behind terrorism on the part of radical Islamists. This is where the radical Islamists get this idea that they can take over the West by taking hostages and murdering innocent men, women, and children. They get this idea because they know that we in the West care an awful lot about even a single human life lost, and we have these very developed ideas of chivalry, wherein if you're a combatant and you die in battle, we're not happy about that, we're very upset about that, we don't want any of our soldiers, sailors or airmen, marines, etc., to be killed in conflict, in battle. But if you start killing our men, women, and children who are non-combatants, well, then you've really pissed us off. Then it's really going to go down. Or we're really going to be afraid. and We're really going to second-guess our approach. And we might give you some concessions, which is what you were going for to begin with. You weren't killing men, women, and children just because... You enjoy taking human life necessarily as an end unto unto itself. You were doing that to get concessions as a bargaining tactic. And you could say, well, that seems very racist to do the compare and contrast along those lines. Western European peoples care more about the value of human life than do Asiatics. Change my mind. I think that is correct. I think particularly when you're looking at Japan, it's hard to argue that the Japanese are as diligent in caring for individual human lives. And it makes no sense to say there are no distinctions, as though referring to any distinction, any meaningful distinction between cultures between traditions, between philosophies is inherently racist. You know, one interesting thing on the flip side is, and this comes up in Shogun, and again, to a lesser extent in Taipan and Gaijin, but in Shogun especially, you have these European sailors who find themselves on Japan. Their ship is scuttled, and they end up coming ashore and being captured by a warlord. And the pilot of this vessel that's just been shipwrecked on the coast of Japan, he notes how clean all of the Japanese are. They bathe regularly. They're very clean. And by contrast, he's a barbarian, and he doesn't bathe all that often at all. Europeans in general don't bathe all that often at all if they can help it. And so you look at this compare and contrast of how important physical hygiene is to Japanese and Chinese. It's very, very important. Very important to being polite and being civilized. And meanwhile, these Europeans are dirty, unkempt, flea-bitten, Mangy, and is it racist to say four hundred years ago there was quite a lot of difference? And maybe our proximity has helped to shape our value—the value that we place on cleanliness, personal cleanliness, germ theory, and all that has helped us to understand the importance of cleaning ourselves and hygiene in staying healthy. But also just wanting to be accepted as we're trading, as East meets West, and we want to trade with these people, and sometimes we want to have war with these people, and sometimes we want to just be respected either in war or in peace, in commerce and in diplomacy, whatever it is. We want to be respected by our adversaries, our competitors, our allies, our enemies. We start bathing ourselves more often so that we are treated as equals instead of as barbarians. But there's a point at which, as history goes on, we stop being the upstarts at the table. We stop being looked down on, and we start being seen as a threat. And it's so interesting to see how this change in perception leads up to the present, in which China and the United States of America are vying for the chief place in the world. America has been in possession of superpower status for decades now, for going on a century, closer to a century. And China has at least internally regarded itself for a very long, long time as being the only truly civilized country in the world. They are the first people they're an old, old country, and they, they think of everybody else as being barbarians. And now, in the coming years, the coming decades, there's a face-off of East meets West, and it's interesting to look at perhaps 450 years or thereabout of historical fiction, which is based on historical fact, and perhaps does a better job of humanizing and personalizing what otherwise could seem like dry, boring, uninteresting, abstract ideas. I think that's what I've really enjoyed about listening to this series, is personalizing everything makes these things feel more real and easy, more easily grasped more easily appreciated. So, I can't in good conscience tell you read this series because there definitely is um, a grindy sort of element to it. It's not for children. I wouldn't recommend it to young readers. But if you can get past the cruelty and the death and the killing and all of that, and the intrigues. Uh, It is a very interesting series. I enjoyed it personally. I love history. It did a great job of personalizing a lot of history for me, East meets West style. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to listen to next. I'd like to find another series of historical fiction works that are at least generally similar. I think it would be very interesting to continue on. Uh, in this vein. James Mishner and his book Covenant was another one I really, really enjoyed in terms of historical fiction. But I'd like to find some more historical fiction that does a good job of making historical trends and facts come alive. So if you have a recommendation, let me know, hit me up. But I got to run. It is Tuesday morning, 641. I'd like to leave in the next four or five minutes. So that's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.